You're listening to Stanford Out Loud. We bring you stories from Stanford Magazine featuring voices of our campus community. I'm your host, Kevin Cool, editor of Stanford Magazine. The story in this episode will be read by Gail White, associate professor of art practice. When I moved to the Bay Area, I started working at the Exploratorium, and they did this fabulous exhibit about Moybridge. I'd heard his name, but I had no idea about the full history. Here's the story. Our story takes place in the 1870s. The nation was swept up in a technological explosion. Americans were swooning over inventions like the telephone and the phonograph. Thomas Edison was preparing to unveil the light bulb. George Eastman had set his sights on a handheld box camera and Leland Stamford, having served his term as governor and launched a railroad empire, was savoring life as a country gentleman. Horses were his passion, and he wanted to breed and train the fastest horses in the world. Photographer Edward Moybridge was the sort of outlandish character that novelists wished they'd invented. Moybridge was born near London in 1830. He fit into a tradition of great English eccentrics, with behavior that ranged from charming to peculiar, with the occasional violent outburst. He had fierce, deep-set eyes, white hair, and a tobacco-stained beard that tumbled halfway down his chest. He was often described as flamboyant or odd, and he went by at least five different names in the course of a life packed with adventure and melodrama. The two men's paths would cross in search of the answer to a question that had captured the attention of scientists, artists, and horsemen alike. Does a running horse ever completely leave the ground? Stanford said the answer was yes, siding with those who swore they could discern all four hooves in the air, what was called unsupported transit. Their opponents denied this possibility with equal fervor, arguing that a horse would certainly collapse without the support of at least one leg. In truth, the human eye couldn't pick out enough detail to resolve the question one way or the other. And so, in 1872, Stanford approached Moybridge to settle the question of unsupported transit once and for all. At the time of their first meeting, Moybridge was the top photographer on the West Coast and was gaining an international reputation. Not bad for someone who had taken up photography just five years before. Stanford offered Moybridge $2,000 to capture an image of a running horse at the very moment in which all four hooves were lifted off the ground. At first, Moybridge said it couldn't be done. The cameras and film of the day were ill-suited to capturing motion, which usually showed up as a blur. For one thing, the shutters were too slow. Mechanical shutters were becoming available, but most photographers relied on the lens cap, a board, or even a hat, anything that could be used to cover and uncover the lens. As for the film, Photographers made their own on the spot by pouring a goopy solution known as wet collodion onto a glass plate, then priming the plate in a solution of silver nitrate. 
the concoction was more than 300 times less light sensitive than modern film. It took between 15 and 60 seconds to take a single picture. Moybridge knew that to discern the movements of a horse at full gallop, the picture would have to be taken in a fraction of a second. Maybe it was the challenge that attracted him, or the pay, or maybe it was Leland Stanford's conviction. But whatever the reason, Moybridge finally agreed to give it a try. And so the impetuous photographer and the stolid governor began a productive partnership. After beginning the project, Moybridge married a 21-year-old divorcee named Flora Stone. And in 1874, Flora gave birth to a son, Floredo Helios Moybridge. Moybridge believed the child was his until he came across letters between his wife and a drama critic named Harry Larkins. The most damning evidence was a photo of Floredo enclosed with one of the letters. Flora had captioned it, Little Harry. Convinced he'd been cuckolded, Moybridge tracked Larkins to a house near Calistoga and shot him through the heart. At his murder trial, the jury rejected an insanity plea, but accepted the defense of justifiable homicide, finding Moybridge not guilty of murder. He spent the following year in Central America in working exile. Moybridge returned to the photography project in 1877. His photos were sharper than ever because he'd surmounted many technical obstacles. In 1872, for instance, he had tried exposing the film by hand by snatching off the lens cap just as the horse streaked past. When that failed, he rigged up a crude shutter made of two slats connected to a string that ran across the track. When the horse broke the string, the two slats slid in opposite directions across the front of the camera, and for a fraction of a second, a gap opened that was enough to expose the film. In July of 1877, Moybridge used this setup, along with newer, more sensitive solutions, to take what he called an automatic electrophotograph of Stanford's horse on the run, apparently aloft. That success inspired the two men to plan a grander project, using photography to analyze entire strides. Instead of a single camera, they would use a dozen. They ordered the finest cameras from New York, and the most advanced lenses from London. The morning of June 15, 1878, was bright and balmy. A crowd of racing enthusiasts and newspaper men huddled beside the track on the Palo Alto stock farm, invited by Stanford to witness a photographic first. Stanford and Moybridge opened the day's spectacle by showing off their preparations. On one side of the track stood a whitewashed shed, with an opening across the front at waist level. Peeking out of the opening were a dozen bulky cameras, lined up like cannons in a galleon. On the opposite side of the track was a white backdrop to maximize contrast. And across the track were laid 12 wires, each connected to a different camera. Then the experiment began. One of Stanford's prized trotters sped down the track, pulling a two-wheeled cart. When a wheel rolled over one of the wires in its path, it completed an electrical circuit, tripping the shutter of the attached camera. 
the 12 shutters fired in quick succession, making a sound like a drum roll. A single exposure could take minutes in those days, but the state-of-the-art cameras took all 12 shots in less than half a second. Within 20 minutes, Moybridge had developed the plates and laid out the results for the visitors to admire. The series made a brief film strip of the horse's progress along the track. The images captured, for the first time, the details the eye couldn't pick out at such speeds, such as the position of the legs and the angle of the tail. Stanford got the evidence he wanted. Around the middle of each stride, all four hooves were visible, clearly lifted at once. Reporters scurried off to spread word of the stunning results. Newspapers and journals couldn't yet reproduce photos, but they depicted them with woodcuts, drawings, and etched heliographs. Those hoofbeats rattled the world of art and science, and their reverberations are still being heard today. In the art world, the images exposed postural errors in classic equine sculptures and paintings. The most common error had been to show a horse running in a hobby horse pose, with its front and hind legs extended. Once Moybridge's photos appeared, painters like Edgar Degas and Thomas Eakins began consulting them to make their work truer to life. But not all artists embraced this new photographic evidence. August Rodin famously thundered, It is the artist who is truthful, and it is photography which lies, for in reality, time does not stop. Within a year of the track demonstration, Moybridge had produced not only the first sequential photos of rapid motion, but also the first machine to project moving photographic images. He adapted a popular children's toy called the Zoetrope to reanimate the trotting sequences and project them onto a screen. The film was a large glass disc about the size of a dinner plate, with the figures running around the edge. Moybridge called his new machine a zoopraxiscope, and it caused nearly as big a stir as the horse photos. Technically, the zoopraxiscope didn't project Moybridge's photos. The images on the plate had to be stretched out so they looked normal on the screen, so an artist had to redraw the photos on the glass, adding the right amount of distortion. But film historians consider the zoopraxiscope a forerunner to the movie projector because it did show the first images based on action photos and, unlike the zoetrope, projected those images so that many people could watch them at once. Moybridge showed the animated images to the Stanfords and a few friends in the fall of 1879. The movie had no sound, of course, and lasted barely long enough for a bite of popcorn. But nevertheless, after a public showing in San Francisco the following spring, a newspaper reporter had this to say about its stunning realism. Nothing was wanting but the clatter of hooves upon the turf and the occasional breath of steam to make the spectator believe he had before him the flesh-and-blood steeds. Moybridge was hailed as a photographic wizard and Stanford as his visionary patron. Each man generously credited the other's contribution, at least at first. Leland Stanford paid Moybridge to take his magical show on a European lecture tour. Moybridge was fawned over in Paris and lionized in England. 
In London, his dazzled audiences included Thomas Huxley, Alfred Lord Tennyson, and the Prince of Wales. Throughout this period of growing fame, Stanford and Moybridge emphasized that their work was a collaboration. But just as their achievement was making its biggest impact, something shattered the long and cozy partnership. It was a clash of egos and ambitions, fueled by Stanford's single-mindedness and Moybridge's patter-keg persona. Leland Stanford asked J.B.D. Stillman, a close friend and horseman, to publish an analysis of the horses in motion. The book claimed to rely on instantaneous photography, but it contained none of Moybridge's photographs. Instead, it offered nearly 100 drawings and engravings, along with analysis that clearly drew heavily on the photographs. But Moybridge's role was barely mentioned. The introduction failed to mention his contribution, except in a sentence describing Moybridge as Stanford's employee. It's possible the slight was unintentional. Printing the photos in the book would have been difficult and costly. And showing off photos was never Stanford's goal. His aim as a collector of fast horses was narrow. After they proved his theory, the groundbreaking photos became superfluous to him. Or it could be that, like many of his contemporaries, Stanford saw photographers as technicians no more important than the dozens of other specialists who helped with the experiments, from engineers and electricians to grooms and trainers. But when Moybridge didn't get the credit he thought an artist deserved, he was outraged and insulted. He thought Stanford was trying to rob him of credit for years of photographic work. He filed a lawsuit accusing Stanford of damaging his reputation and jeopardizing his career. The judge dismissed the suit against Stanford before it went to trial, but this did not diminish the status of photographers. Moybridge's photos helped push society to recognize photography as an art that could reveal an aspect of the world hidden to the painter's eye. By the time the judge dismissed his suit, Moybridge had won over another group of patrons and launched a two-year study of animal and human motion at the University of Pennsylvania. With 36 cameras operating simultaneously, he and his assistants snapped more than 30,000 photos of adults, children, and animals performing almost every imaginable action, from a nude Moybridge swinging a pick to a series called Chickens Being Frightened by a Torpedo. He presented these photos in three books, and he continued to lecture across America and Europe. For animators and other artists, the images he captured of Stanford's horses remained a standard reference, a dictionary of movement. In the end, it was the medium Moybridge helped to invent that finally put him out to pasture. Motion pictures came on the scene in the early 1890s and eclipsed the novelty of his work. He returned to England for the last decade of his life. Eccentric to the end, he died in 1904 while building a model of the Great Lakes in his backyard. The original version of this story was written by Mitchell Leslie and appeared in the May 2001 issue of Stanford Magazine. 
Thanks to Professor Gail White for reading it. Stanford Out Loud is produced by Charity Ferreira and Will Rogers and brought to you by the Stanford Alumni Association. For more of our stories, visit stanfordmag.org.